After a brief break in our study on the Word of God, we're back into the book of Philippians, and someone asked me, Are we, have we finished with the book of Philippians? And uh, I said, no, we're just getting ready to get into the good parts, chapters 3 and 4, so uh, I'm looking forward to the rest of this study. There was a, an actor of a bygone era that uh, if you are in the younger age group, you might not have heard of him, but his name is Groucho Marx of the, the Marx Brothers. And <clears throat> stories told when Groucho Marx was vacationing in Monte Carlo, and one of the resorts there decided to have a Groucho Marx lookalike contest. They didn't know he was in the area, but he heard about it and thought this, this would be fun to enter that thing. And so he did, and the, the night of the uh, contest came, and he entered it and came in third place. <laughs> evidently two people who looked more like him than he did. But he was a very, uh, had very distinctive characteristics, uh, easy to recognize. For, for one thing, he had a mustache that looked kind of like this. <laughs> and, and the big eyebrows and uh, wiry hair and slightly bulging eyes and uh, he was easy to recognize. He had some defining characteristics. Well, what we're going to look at today in this passage is what are some defining characteristics or of a true believer? Um, what do we look like? Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but we're just going to look at verses 1 through 3 here, and we'll find five characteristics or five marks of true believers. <clears throat> the first is that True believers rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 3.1 Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. So, he begins with the word, finally. And in typical preacher fashion, he's got two more chapters to go here. But he says, finally. And I uh, heard the story of... Uh, uh, a pastor was used to saying this and, and keep going. And at one time in a sermon, he said, finally, and the little lad asked his dad, uh, what, what does pastor mean when he says finally? And his dad said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> but this word finally actually means not like it's the last thing. It's just, it's just a transition statement. It's moving to another point. It means we're starting a, a different um, section. So, um, and the focus here is on rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Ten times in this letter, Paul talks about rejoicing in the Lord. It's a major theme of the book of Philippians. We are to rejoice, we are to be joyful, and specifically to rejoice in the Lord. And we find happiness in a lot of things. But remember there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is based on the English word happen. It's related to what happens in your life. And if what happens in your life is, is good, then you're happy. But if what happens in your life is not so good, then you're not happy. 
And so it's related to outward circumstances, events, people, stuff like that. But joy is related to what's going on inside. It is a settled peace and trust in the Lord that no matter what is happening outside, God is in control, and we have this settled peace inside, the joy of the Lord. So he says to rejoice in the Lord, and the verb he uses here is actually an imperative. It is a command. You, in fact, you could put an exclamation point after this, rejoice in the Lord, exclamation point. You could just put a Nike swish next to it and say, just do it. It's a command. Rejoice in the Lord. So since it's a command, it means it, uh, in expressing joy is not then a result of emotion because you cannot command a certain kind of emotion. You can't make people feel a certain way. So it's, it's not a, an emotion that he means. Secondly, a joy then is not a temperamental characteristic because you can't rewire someone to to do this simply by commanding it and then also joy then is not related to circumstances or to your health or your bank accounts because again you can't control the circumstances around you 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 can't control your your health and so forth and so as a command, it's not related to any of those kinds of things. It is a choice to choose to rejoice in the Lord, to find in Jesus your fount of joy, your source of joy is in Him. Now, we can enjoy all kinds of things, right? But, but if you are looking to something else to be your source of joy, you are going to be disappointed. But rejoice in the Lord. He will never let you down. He will never disappoint you. He is the unending source of true joy. Find your joy in the Lord. Now think about how this relates to the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, is, we'll just think about the first three. Love, joy, peace. So, um... The fruit of the Spirit is, first of all, love. But, but not just the general, everyday kind of love. It's the agape love. It's the God's kind of love. It's a love which is willing to go to any length, pay any price for the blessing and benefit of another. That's how God's love is toward us, right? He was willing to even to die on the cross for us. God so loved us that he did that. It's also a fruit of the Spirit. And we are commanded to love, but it's also a fruit of the Spirit. So as we're walking in the Spirit, we have the fruit of the Spirit, including love. There's also peace. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, but my peace I give to you. Not the kind of peace we have in the world, but the kind of peace that comes from Jesus Christ. He offers us. In fact, in the next chapter of Philippians, we'll see that, that there is a peace that passes all understanding. So, not the peace of the world, but supernatural peace from the Lord. Well, what can be said of love and peace is also true of joy. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So, we don't have a, 
a worldly kind of joy. We don't find our joy just in the things of life, although we might enjoy them, but we find our joy in the Lord. He is the source of our joy, and part of the fruit of the Spirit is having that kind of joy. Ultimately, our joy is to be found in the Lord, and true believers rejoice in the Lord. He goes on to say, For me to write these same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. So this particular statement could relate either either backward to what he's just said, rejoice in the Lord, or forward to what he's going to say in verse 2. And I have found in in Paul's writings that normally when you come across this kind of situation, uh, uh, that it's really meant to go both ways. He purposely writes it in such a way that it relates both backward and forward. So, rejoicing in the Lord, he says, for you, it is safe, or it is a safeguard. The word translated safe, there's actually a word that means to, to not stumble. For, for you to remember, to find your joy in the Lord is good for you because it will help you not stumble by looking for joy in other things that cannot satisfy. Uh, but it also relates to verse 2. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And now, verse 2 in our second point, true believers exercise discernment. Paul is concerned about the false teachers, especially the Judaizers, who wanted people, uh, believers, to also add to their salvation circumcision. For them, it was not enough that a person believed in Jesus. They needed something more added to it, specifically to be circumcised like they had been. You have to remember that the vast majority of the early church was made up of Jewish converts. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 came to faith in Christ. And then later on, 5,000. So we had these thousands of Jewish converts who all their life and all their parents' life, their parents' parents' life, and for generations and hundreds of years, all they have known is you have to be circumcised. And so that's in their heart, in their mind, in their psyche. And so when they come to put their faith in Christ, they're still thinking, yes, we will add Jesus to our circumcision. And people who believe in Jesus need to add circumcision to their belief. And so they were going around giving this false gospel, adding something to the finished work of Christ. They teach a Christ plus gospel. It's good to have Christ, but you need to add something else. Namely, for them, it was circumcision. Now, today, we're not going around telling people you have to be circumcised, right? Um, but we might add other things to it. We might say, it's good that you were baptized, but you need to add certain good works to that to ensure that you're saved. Or even something good like you have to be baptized to be saved. Rather that, than that baptism is a symbol, a sign that you have been saved, some will say you have to be baptized in order to be saved. That's adding something to the finished work of Christ. Or you have to do... Uh, certain works or church attendance or anything else that you add to Christ is a Christ plus gospel. 
It's what Paul calls another gospel and not the true gospel. And so he says these three things about those kinds of people who want to add to Christ something else that you need to be, quote, spiritual or saved. First of all, he, he says, beware of dogs. Beware of dogs. Now, you can't think of dogs like we have dogs today, especially for pets. And now, <clears throat> Sherry and I don't currently have a pet dog, but we've, we've had for a lot of years dogs. And the last dog we had was a toy poodle named Muffin. Now, <clears throat> have you ever gone up to a house or a property where it says, beware of the dog, Right? You, you want to be careful. You don't stick your hand in there and want to pet that dog. You might not pull a whole, full hand back. It was not necessary with Muffin to have a beware of dog sign. I mean, even the name kind of gives that away, right? Beware of Muffin, right? Muffin was afraid of squirrels. Most dogs like to chase squirrels, but not Muffin. She tried one time. I watched her. She started taking off after a squirrel. It stopped. And turned around, and she came running back to me with her tail between her legs, screaming. Man, this is not a dog you need a beware of dog sign for. But the dogs back then were not like our pet dogs today. They roamed in packs. They were vicious. They were scavengers. Uh, this, this is what you would call someone who was uh, the dregs of the earth. Ironically, it is what the Jewish people called Gentiles. They were dogs. And Paul is using that of them, of the Jewish people who are insisting that you add something to Christ. Beware of dogs. They were filthy, vicious, dangerous, just like wild dogs. Secondly, he says, beware of evil workers. Evil workers. They claimed to be leading people to more righteousness. That is, it's good that you believe in Jesus, but to really be spiritual, to really have righteousness, you need to add things to it. You need to add the law and specifically circumcision and the other parts of the law and the feast and so forth and abstain from these foods. And they kept piling on. Pretending that or assuming that it would lead people to more righteousness. But they were robbers. First of all, they were robbing Christ of his glory. And they were robbing believers of their joy and assurance. They're robbing Christ of his glory because Jesus fully paid for our sin, right? We don't need anything else. We don't need someone else to die. We don't need to add anything to it. In fact, to add something to what Jesus has done is blasphemy. It is a way of saying what Jesus did is not sufficient. It's like saying, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. Wish you could have done better. Wish you could have done more. Now, of course, people aren't intending to say that kind of thing, but that's really theologically what's going on. It's, it's a thought that something needs to be added to the finished work of Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, and he said, it is finished. He meant it. 
So it robs Christ of his glory, but it also robs believers of their joy and their assurance, always wondering, what else do I need to do? What more works do I need to add to it? When there's no work that could ever save you or help you, it's fully dependent on the finished work of Christ. So beware of evildoers. Beware of those who change the gospel of grace into a gospel of works. And third, beware of the mutilation. Beware of the mutilation. Now, this is a play on words because the, uh, the word for circumcision is peritameo. A peri means to, uh, circular, like a perimeter, around, peri, perimeter. Tameo is to cut, so to cut around, it's the word for circumcision. But he uses the word here, anatameo, which means to cut down or to cut off. It's a graphic term. He's saying they just want to mutilate you, emasculate you. They're not really concerned about your spiritual well-being. They just want you to be like them. Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that if a person who has, who has been circumcised doesn't keep the law, then what good is that to them? But if a person who does not have circumcision, yet he keeps the righteousness of the law, he will be counted as the true circumcision. Because it is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It's, it's not the outward circumcision, but the circumcision of the heart that matters to God. Romans 8, 28, Romans 2, 28 and 29. So beware the mutilation, those who, who just want to do something to you that's not, outwardly, that's not going to do anything inwardly, spiritually for you. It'd be a no benefit. So true believers exercise spiritual discernment. They understand that these things are leading away from Christ, not leading toward Christ. Beware of anything that leads you away from Christ. True believers are not blown about by every wind of doctrine. True believers will not be persuaded by anyone to abandon Christ alone. So true believers rejoice in the Lord. Secondly, true believers exercise spiritual discernment. And then third, verse 3 says that true believers worship in spirit. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. This is all related to what he said about the Judaizers in verse 2 and what they want you to do to add to your salvation. He says, we are the true circumcision, those who really belong to the Lord, who do these three things. First of all, who worship God in spirit, or that could be translated to worship in the spirit of God. This is what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 4. When he met the, the woman at the well. And remember he was talking to her about giving her uh, living water. And she would never thirst again and so forth. And, um, and he tells her, why don't you go bring your husband? She says, oh, I don't have a husband. He said, you say rightly because you've had five husbands. 
And the one you're living with now is not your husband. And so he brings up her, her sin to her and also reveals that he knows her intimately well. And so she, she says to him, John 4, 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place we're not to worship. This, she's changing the topic. Let's not talk about me anymore. Let's talk about something that's a debatable issue that people fight about. We say this, you guys say that. Often when you will share the gospel with someone else, they will want to bring up something that's a debatable issue. Well, yeah, well, what about something else? To take the heat off themselves. And this seems to be what she's doing. But she plays right into Jesus' hand because he, bringing up worship, gives him the opportunity to talk about true worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Because it's not about location, location, location. It's not real estate. It's not about where you are. It's not this mountain or in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Because what the Jews were doing up to this point were, remember we're still in the gospel time before the new covenant, they were worshiping according to the Old Testament, which is all that they had and that was right for them to do. They were worshiping according to the word of God. In other words, they were worshiping according to the truth that they had. But he says, but the hour is coming and now is. There's a change coming, a whole, a different testament, a, a different covenant coming. Instead of living by the old covenant or old testament, now a new covenant is coming in the blood of Christ. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so Paul is saying the same thing here. We are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, or, or by the spirit worship God. And how can we worship God by the spirit? Well, first of all, it is by being saved, being born again being part of the family of God, when a person gives their life to Christ, they trust in Him for salvation, He, in turn, not only saves them, but He puts His Spirit inside of them. At the moment of salvation, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And we are able then to worship in spirit because we have this indwelling Spirit of God. We're also able to worship in spirit as we walk in the Spirit, as we are in tune with the Spirit, and as we, we're not trying to worship in the flesh. It's not about where we worship. It's not about even the kind of music that we sing, right? It's not, that doesn't make it worship or not. It's not about the kind of building that you're in. It's not the time that you worship. It's about Him. We worship God in spirit and in truth, that is according to his word. True believers, number four, glory in Christ Jesus. 
Now, the word glory also means to rejoice or brag or boast in something or in someone. In fact, I think it's NIV translates this, we boast in Christ Jesus. And that's probably the best translation of this word. doesn't really mean rejoice. It's a different word than rejoice in the Lord. And it's also a different word than glory, although it's kind of like that. It really means to brag or to boast. You might think, well, I thought believers weren't supposed to boast. Well, we are in one thing, in Christ. But we are tempted to boast in ourselves, aren't we? And uh, uh, so something really great happens to us or we accomplish some, some big deal and uh, we want other people to know it, so it's going to be posted on Facebook. But we kind of sanctify our posting a little bit because we're Christians. And we'll, and we'll say, I want to praise God for... I accomplished this great thing. We still want people to know. Or we boast in our children, their accomplishments. Or in my category, we boast in our grandchildren. Let me tell you, I could really boast in my grandchildren. I could regale you for hours of the great things about my grandchildren. But then you'd want to do the same for me, and I don't want to hear that. <laughs> you know, it's okay to rejoice with others to acknowledge um, accomplishments in others whether it's our children or grandchildren or our neighbors our friends our co-workers we rejoice with those who rejoice right it's a good thing to do that but to boast in something to we have to we have to be aware that we don't lead to personal pride so don't cross that line but our boasting truly is in one place. It's in the Lord. That we, we worship God in spirit and we glory or rejoice in Christ Jesus. You know that, um, or some of you know, I like to play chess. And uh, so there was, this, there was this group of uh, chess enthusiasts who were gathered together for a chess tournament and they're all staying in the same hotel and they were in the, in the lobby talking together and, and kind of uh, bragging about their exploits in chess. And someone who was not part of the group came by and asked the, the clerk at the desk, what are all these people doing over there? And he said, oh, don't worry about them. They're, they're just chestnuts boasting in the open foyer. I've got some worse ones than that. <laughs> but we... We tend to boast, but our boasting should be in the Lord. I love the way the Apostle Paul put it in Galatians 6.14. God forbid that I should boast or glory except in the cross of Christ Jesus by which I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. God forbid that I should boast in anything, anyone, especially myself, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. True believers glory in Christ Jesus. And then finally, and by this I really mean finally, true believers put no confidence in the flesh. This is the other side of the coin of rejoicing only 
glorying only in Christ. The other side of that is we put no confidence in the flesh. The flesh represents man's fallen, unredeemed humanness. It pictures human ability apart from God. To do something in the flesh is to do it apart from God, to do it in the, in the old man. In other words, to put confidence in the flesh is to trust in what I can do apart from Jesus. Now in John chapter 15, when Jesus talks about the branches and the, the vines, what does he say? Without me, you can do nothing. You know what the Greek word is there for nothing? The Greek word is diddly squat. <laughs> Without me, you can do diddly squat. I think I just made that up. but You get the idea. Truly, we are to put no confidence in the flesh. The flesh profits you nothing spiritually. Now that doesn't mean you don't live for the Lord. Of course you do. But we do so in the power of the Spirit and confidence that He is working in us. He is able to work through us. No confidence in the flesh. Now Paul could have, as he says in these next few verses, look at verse 4, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. And not only that, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That is, he was a, um, a true Hebrew. He was a patriotic Hebrew. He knew the law. He, he uh, spoke Hebrew. Even in that day, many had gone away from speaking Hebrew and were speaking either Aramaic or Greek, which is why the Old Testament was translated into Greek at this time, during, right just before the time of Jesus, called the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, because so many had lost Hebrew. But he knew Hebrew. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Just a little side note here. If Paul was a Pharisee, that means at one point he had been married. We know in places like 1 Corinthians 7 that he is single at that point. But he must have been married in order to have become a Pharisee because it was a requirement. But he was a, he was a Pharisee. In fact, he says elsewhere he, he learned at the feet of Gamaliel, the chief of the Pharisees, chief teacher of the Pharisees, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. In his religious zeal, he was willing to do anything in the name of the Lord, even if it meant killing other people. He was a, what we would call a modern-day jihadist. For God. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Not the righteousness of God, but the righteousness of the law. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. We'll talk about these verses more next week, but you see how Paul could have had much to boast about, but he said, we put no confidence in the flesh. And this is true of all of life, but it's most significantly true of salvation. 
we can do nothing in ourselves to earn our salvation. But also, not only are we saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, but that's how we live also, our daily lives, our sanctification. It's by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. Our sins are many, but His mercy is more. As we looked at our our own flesh, our own selves, we see the abundance of our sins. And as we ask God to explore, to, to look at our own spirit, as David said in Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my ways, try my heart to see if there's any wicked way in me. As he does that and brings those things to mind, we see our sins are many, but we rejoice that his mercy is more. It's always more. Paul put it this way in, in Romans 5, 20, Where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. Grace always is more than our sin. His mercy is always greater than our sin. His mercy is more. So when it comes to salvation, we put no confidence in the flesh. That is, ourself. No confidence in the fact that I was baptized. I get a little bit nervous when I... Ask someone for their testimony and they say, well, uh, I was baptized. Listen, baptism does not wash away your sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can wash away your sin. Or I, I belong to this church. Belonging to a church, being a member of a church does not save you. Going to a church does not make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Or people put confidence in their good works. I I try to do good. I'm better than my neighbor and so forth. You're not saved by your good works. It's Christ alone. Have no confidence in the flesh. If you are trusting in anything, anything other than Jesus Christ alone, you're putting your confidence in the wrong thing. That is a false gospel. Come to Him, to Him alone. He died for your every sin. If you will trust in Jesus Christ alone, He will save you. There's a a song uh, called My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. I love these words and a reminder of them. My faith has found a resting place, a place where I can be at ease and rest. My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died. It is enough. It's sufficient. His grace is sufficient. His mercy is more. It is enough that Jesus died, and that he died for me. Lord, we thank you for these reminders today of what uh, a true Christian looks like. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, encourage our hearts in these things. We thank you, Lord, for your faithful working in our lives. That, Lord, And Lord, we ask that you would Truly give us a rejoicing spirit in you. 
that we will find our joy in, in you and, and quit looking to other things or people or circumstances, but find our joy in you. That we would be discerning people, wary of false doctrine, wary of anything that leads away from you. That we would desire to worship you in spirit and in truth. Not in the flesh, not in the way that we think is meaningful, but in the spirit of God. Lord, that, that we would come to you and uh, acknowledge that you alone are worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. That we would glory in you. That we would make our boast in you. That we would boast in nothing else but the cross of Christ. And that we would put no confidence in our own flesh. Lord, we thank you the, that even though we continue to sin... We, by birth and nature and choice, are sinners. You have saved us from that sin. And as we sin, Lord, we come before you, the everlasting one, the ever-loving one, the ever-faithful one, because your mercy is always more. Your grace always abounds. We thank you, Lord, and we pray that you would safeguard these things in our hearts, that we would take them with us this day and this week, that our full reliance and confidence would be in you alone. In Jesus' name.